Welcome to the CTO Connection Podcast. I'm Peter Bell, and every couple of weeks, I'll be sharing interviews with top engineering leaders. Today, I'm speaking with David Schwartz, the CTO of Ripple. David, thanks so much for taking the time to chat today. It's a pleasure to speak to you, Peter. So a question I usually ask the guests on the show, you're the CTO of Ripple. How did you get there? Like you, you presumably, I know that you were a, a network engineer, you were a software developer. So, so what went so terribly wrong that they, they, they decided to take your keyboard away? You know, I kind of feel like that is the, it's funny that you say that, that is kind of the way I feel about it. I kind of do miss the instant gratification of programming. But I think uh, one of the things that I learned is that like, if you want to scale a person, you need more people. You can't do 10 times as much work, or well, you can do 10 times as much work, maybe you can't do 100 times. You reach some physical limit where you just, you have to get other people to, in order to continue to scale. Um, so I did start out as, a, as a, I guess, a developer. I was in more in the network engineering side, distributed systems. I worked for a software company that did secure messaging for government and military. Um, but I was looking for something that could really be innovative. I was looking for something that could employ technology in a different or new way. I didn't want to just put together the same pieces in the same ways that everybody else was doing. And I was very fortunate that I found an opportunity to let me do that when blockchain started to become a thing that people talked about. And right as I was looking for something where there was an opportunity to develop new technologies, I discovered Bitcoin. And I looked at it, and I looked at it the way like you might look at an alien artifact. I'm like, what is this? How does this do this cool thing that it does? What are its parts? Does it have, you know, does it have some secret part that hasn't been invented before? Or does it combine existing parts in a new way? You know, what is the magic? And at that time, Jed McCaleb was looking for someone to develop some new blockchain technologies. And just from those early questions of like, how could we do things different? How could we do things better? What could we learn from, from existing projects? It kind of exploded into this software and blockchain company, Ripple. Now, just for people who don't know to provide context, could you just say a couple of words about what does Ripple do? The answer to what we are is that you can sort of look at us. Sometimes it's easy to see us as an enterprise software company. We make software, we sell it to banks, banks buy our software. Um, that's a, a kind of a very superficially obvious way. But what we're really about is changing international payments. We're really about removing friction from global payments. We're about making finance faster, cheaper, improving things like certainty, fixing the things that are broken. Um, and we're very much a cryptocurrency company. Got it. Now, you say international payments. So do you tie in with banks' actual payment flows? Like how tightly integrated are you with the banks and the banking system? That's the audacious part. Like imagine a startup that says like, we want banks to run our software and put their live financial transactions. We want to integrate with their compliance. We want to handle their PII. We want to be like right in that flow. And the answer is yes. And the reason we had to do that is kind of interesting. It wasn't like that was our business strategy. It wasn't like we're going to build software that's going to handle payments for banks and we'll sell it to them and we'll make money. It's more that we needed payments to work well for the products and services we wanted to sell to work. An analogy that you might use is like Twitter is not in the cell phone business, but cell phones have to be fantastic or Twitter doesn't have a target market or Twitter's not in the home internet business, but if people don't have home internet access how is Twitter going to work? It's like we were entering a new field that had no infrastructure. And so we had to build a lot of infrastructure just to be able to like have customers who had the ability to use the products that we really wanted to make and sell. So it was very much a sort of long-term change the world kind of play. Nice. So 
how big was the engineering organization at the point in time where you were actually like dealing with live financial data with big banks? It was pretty small. I would say we probably had a total of 35 employees or so, um, and probably about 20 of them technical. Uh, we very quickly had to ramp up things, the non-engineering parts of that, like compliance and legal. And yeah, it, we were, it, so one thing that I think we did get right is we ramped those things up very, very early. And a, a prevailing attitude, at least in the blockchain space, maybe not in other spaces, well, there is kind of this ethos of sort of move fast and break things. You can't go to banks and say, we're going to move fast and break things. Like that's 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 completely a non-starter. So um, we kind of had to engage with regulators very early. We had to deal with issues like PII and reliability very early. One of the other things that we learned with banks is if anything goes wrong in a project, like I could, I could give you a ridiculous example, like payments failed because someone didn't have the time setting correct on a server. Now, most industries, they'd be like, we'll just yell at the guy who did that wrong. We'll fix the time and then we'll be going, you know, tomorrow. But banks will want to like put together a committee to investigate the problem. And it's going to be the, you know, the final report will be approved by some committee next quarter. And then they'll come up with, you know, they move very, very slowly. I think another thing that we learned is that we were initially focused exclusively on banks. And we discovered that there are these non-bank financial institutions, payment companies, essentially, um, remittance companies and, and companies that sort of bypass banks to, to settle payments. They move much faster. They're the kind of companies that will get a team of four people to like have the go to the store and buy the hardware that day, and they can move much, much more quickly. And so now we're targeting customers in both of those groups. I think that's that's helped us scale a lot. Nice. So when I look at your LinkedIn profile, the the way that it describes your tenure at Ripple is like almost eight years as chief cryptographer, and then in the last year and a bit as the CTO. Is that actually how it worked? Like did you have no line management responsibility? Were you not building an org? Like, how did that practice actually work? It, it is a not. It is definitely a sort of non-standard sort of way of uh, flow. So I started out. Um, I was one of the lead architects behind what's now the XRP ledger. So I was putting the technology together. I was writing code. And then we grew that into a team. So we now have an XRP Ledger team that maintains the XRP Ledger. It's probably about 14 people. Um, and then over time, that I basically handed off every single one of my early responsibilities. I handed them off to other people because you can't have a bus factor of one, particularly when you have one person who's been with the company the longest and who's personally been involved in the building of a lot of the tech. And then you have an org with 150 people. And it can't be that the response to everything is called David. First of all, one of the things that I tell people is I don't want there to be anything that I have to do. There, I'm not worried about running out of things to do. I want to be able to do the things where I think I can have the most impact. And anything that I have to do is one less choice that I have. And so I sort of handed off all of my responsibilities. And then in the chief cryptographer role, largely what I was doing was more was on the strategic level. Like I, like I would meet with groups to talk about like, changes in one product that affect another product and those kinds of things. And my role was somewhat informal, like because I've been with the company so long and I had respect, I could, no one's going to kick me out of a meeting. But if I'm not somebody's manager, I can't tell them to do their job a different way. But then if I told them something, you know, they would take it to their manager. But it wasn't, it, it was an informal arrangement that worked well, but not so, not perfectly. And then um, right around the same time that Brad Garlinghouse switched from COO to CEO, 
And as we were also growing the org in ways where our original org structure wasn't well suited, like one example, when you're a startup, you're basically only trying to do one thing. Like you're trying to get one product out to one class of customers and you have one message and everything's really clear. But then as you start to things get more complicated, you have different types of customers, you have different products, you have different fronts. And the org was being rearranged to better be able to suit a, a larger, more scaled enterprise. You know, customer success is different from sales. Where's that handoff? Where's integration engineering versus product? And we made some mistakes in that area that I can talk about that I think are interesting too, but we were in the, in, in the uh, cleaning up the org. And it was at that point that Brad said to me, and also, it also helped that, that Stefan Thomas had just left to start Coil, and he was our CTO to make the role more formal and more tied into, you know, the organization of the organization, organization of the organization's <laughs> character. That makes sense. Now, there are many different kinds of CTOs, right? There's kind of like the visionary architectural leader that people are kind of drawn to to work as part of them. There's the kind of very pragmatic, kind of keeps the trains running on time and good at creating OKRs and KPIs. There's the kind of technical genius hidden in the corner writing code and probably shouldn't have the title. How would you characterize what are the primary roles and responsibilities for you as a CTO? Like, do you have a VPE who keeps the trains running on time? Like, how, how do you do that? Yes, Chris Chris Kanan is our VPE. He he's definitely more of the he's more of the sort of organizational kind of keeps the trains running on time kind of guy. I think my role is um, a lot of it is I guess what you would describe as like the visionary, the person who makes sure that like the products move in directions that make sense, make sure that the pieces of the org fit together, handle. I do a lot of work handling the interface between the technical and non-technical aspects of the company. So we have a lot. I probably I would say we have more of that than many other companies do because of the size of the problems we're trying to solve compared to the size of the org. So like, for example, there's a lot of interface between engineering and legal, far more than probably in most companies. And so that's something that I do a significant fraction. And the same thing would go with compliance and strategy. So where there are those types of interfaces to the technical side of the org, that's very often me. And that takes a surprising amount of time just because of the types of problems that we're trying to solve. We also have things like an uncertain regulatory environment where we do a lot of regulatory engagement. And so technical issues come up all the time. And I, I have only a limited amount of time. So I tend to spend a lot of time doing the things that really only I can do. And so it's, I, it's, I'm very, very grateful that I have people to back me up in the org who can do those not... <laughs> to me, they almost seem a little bit less interesting, I guess, because the things that I do directly seem the most interesting. It's like, oh, it's just keeping the trains running on time. But <laughs> it's a phenomenally difficult pro it's a phenomenally difficult problem. Right. I mean, nobody cares if the trains run on time unless they don't. Right. <laughs> it's like, wait, no, no, we needed to hire 20 new engineers. Well, we don't have an onboarding guide and we don't have a pipeline. Yeah. And you're trying to scale every aspect of an organization. You're trying to scale how quickly you can bring on customers, but then you have to, you know, you have to sell to them and then you have to support them and, and then you have to add the features that they want. And you get this thing where like, do you want to target each country that we target requires some effort because they have different regulations and they also have different problems. They have, they have um, different things that bother them in terms of their competitive environment or the regulatory challenges that they face. So there's a surprising amount. You know, I used to work at a software company where if we sold to somebody in a new country, it's like, oh, they're in a new country. That's cool. Download our software and run it. And it works the same, you know, wherever you are. And there might be, you know, how are they going to pay us might be a challenge, but it wasn't nearly the sort of boots on the ground engagement process that we have. And, and that touches technical, you know, all over. Which, which I think brings us back to something you mentioned earlier as a sidebar, which is the, the handoff between, well, 
where does the product end and the integration engineering start? So you had some some bumps while you were originally trying to figure that out? Yeah, I would say in retrospect, we struggled with that a lot. I think at the time, we didn't realize that that was the problem, unfortunately. Like, again, we were trying to we're trying to do you know, a startup trying to tackle an audacious problem. I, I sometimes love a joke. My wife would ask me if I had a good day. And I'd say, if you have to make every mistake once, I had a great day. You know, because, you know lots of things went wrong, but you, you, you learn from them. So we, we have a sales department and their job is to sell software to banks and financial institutions. And they have a certain target of how many pieces of software they're supposed to sell to how many, uh, you know, how many organizations of which type. And originally, that just sort of ended their responsibility. Once the contract was signed, they get a nice little green dot on their dashboard and they're happy. The problem is you need to make sure that the quality of what's coming out of that funnel and going into sort of the next funnel is the the types of customers that will grow your network. In the early days, if you're just like, I want to have X, you know, I want to have 50 customers instead of 20 customers, you just want a bigger number, you don't really care about the quality of what's going into the funnel. But if if your value proposition is a network, the value proposition is who you can use our technology to communicate with, you need customers who are actually using the technology to communicate. Otherwise, it does, you know, you could be the rock star customer who wants to do everything and there's nobody for you to talk to. So one of the things that we adjusted, there are a lot of things that we adjusted, but one of them is the handoff between sales and um, like the next step of integration engineering and then customer support. And we tied um, going through the rest of that pipeline into this compensation of the salespeople. So they're incentivized to make sure they get customers that will go further through the pipe and they don't just throw it over the wall once they get that green dot. And there's also a technical aspect to that too. When you first start selling software, you think you know what your customers want. And you're, you know, hopefully you're at least right about the problem and the broad strokes of the solution, but you're probably wrong about the challenges that they'll face in adopting your solution. That's something that you really only learn from experience. And so in the beginning, it was a very high touch process where we had to hold the customer's hand through everything. And we were very surprised by the things that were happening. One of the very important lessons that we learned is to feed that back into the engineering process so that the product is already sort of set up for those integration challenges. The ideal situation for us would be that the technical integration is taking place during the sales process. So in in the first iteration, you finish the sale, sales is happy, and then you start like telling the customer, okay, who's the team of people who are going to do this implementation and when can we meet to train them? And you kind of it's like hurry up and stop, and then you have to. They have to decide. You know, you start this this whole new cycle. Pushing that to run in parallel requires the product to be more attuned to the customer, and it requires the customer to be able to be more self directed, so they can take the people who are going to do the integration and point them at the documentation and point them at a self help system that automated testing harness. So if they say, "Hey, we think we got our implementation right," you know, can you send us some test transactions? They just push a button, and that happens, and it certifies. It says, "Yes, you passed that. You're ready to go on to the next step." That kind of maturity in the entire sales cycle is something that I think we're really just starting to get right now. We're right at that sort of inflection point where our challenge is not so much, can we get it to work, but it's, can we scale it? Can we get as many customers as we want as rapidly as we want? And if you do the math and you say, you know, one integration engineer can bring on three customers a year, we want a thousand customers. (laughs) Well, 300, you know, that's, that's our entire org's capacity to recruit people. And, you know, it's not realistic. So you have to look at ways that you can uh, simplify that process. And that requires better understanding the problems that your customers are going to run into before they have to complain about them. 
So presumably you have a, a separate integration engineering team, right? Mm -hmm. How do you deal with the interface and the, the the culture? It kind of reminds me of like if you're in a product org, the challenge is you often at a certain scale have a platform team and a feature team. And in the perfect world, the platform team's job is to make the feature team happy. And in an imperfect world, their job is to explain how stupid the feature team is and why they don't understand the brilliance <laughs> of their architecture. How, how do you manage that culturally between like the, the product team who are like, building this amazing, and I mean, it's an amazing thing. And then the integration engineers who are kind of like, if you're not careful, kind of just the grunts implementing it. How, how do you make that service oriented? Yeah, there, there's a combination of factors. One of them is just constructive meetings and just, and just everybody understanding that they're on the same team and that ultimately, like, we all want the same thing. Um, I, I think the biggest thing is to, is to learn from your customers, to see what your customers really want and then feed that back in so that the later iterations of the product become more attuned to what the customers need so that you don't have that friction. We're very lucky in that we were able to hire people who had that level of expertise in enterprise software sales and enterprise software management so that we couldn't really develop that expertise in-house like just by trial and error. We're also very, very iterative with our own processes. Like when, when we try to learn as much as possible from something that goes wrong and we try to improve our processes based on what we learned. So how do you hire people for the integration engineering role? Because obviously it, it's a competitive market. Do you, is, it, is it harder to place someone there rather than, than you know, in the, the platform or product team? I don't think it's particularly harder. I think once you have mature teams, it's not, it tends to be less difficult to add people to it than when you're a smaller company. Once you, that's one advantage of scaling is that you have more people who are familiar with what you're doing so that you can onboard people more quickly. One of the challenges with the integration engineering side is that they're very much closer to the customer. So it helps for them to have more expertise with the type of customer that they're supporting. One thing we look for is regional expertise, particularly on the integration engineering side so that they're more familiar with the particular challenges that you know different regions will different regions will face and that they're able to you know go into those regions and operate. Another thing that we did to help with that is move some of the integration engineering into the regions that they're supporting. So, you know, if you're trying to support, you know, Saudi Arabia and you have to fly your team in there every time they need to have a meeting, uh, you don't have to have a giant office with hundreds of people, but just having people who are in that community and who you know planting your flag in the ground with your customers makes a huge difference in the ability to work with them on the on the integration. What was most surprising to you moving into the CTO role? Had you dealt with a technical org that size? And were there any things that, that particularly surprised you as being perhaps more difficult than you'd have expected? I think the thing that was challenging for me moving into the CTO role was dealing with the number of different stakeholders. So when you're lower down on the org chart, it's more clear who wants things from you, what they want, and you can sort of make a list. You know, like if you're a developer, I'm supposed to fix this bug, or I'm supposed to have these three features, and the roadmap is these 10 features next month or whatever. Uh, whereas when you, when you have the entire technical portion of an org, there are demands on you from product, but there are also demands from legal. There are demands from finance. There's just all of these different demands pulling you in different directions. And I think one of the other challenges is like, you want to add capabilities. You want to get better at every. You want to get better at everything. You want to be able to add more features. You want to be able to reduce technical debt. You want to be able to provide more support to sales. Uh, but you have limited resources like money and talent, and it becomes an optimization problem of deploying those resources, you know, towards those demands. 
And there's very much a challenge of figuring out what's important. The other challenge is I like to say yes to people. I don't like to say no, particularly when it's something that's a really cool, interesting, valuable, useful thing. You know, like we had one situation where an EU government came to us and they said, if you can solve this problem for us, we'll require everybody in this industry in our country to use your solution. Nobody would want to say no to that, but it was nowhere on our roadmap. So it's like, are we going to become a company that's an expert in this thing and we're going to have to support it and and it's going to drain resources and we have commitments to customers and I don't like saying no. And I had to learn, uh, there's a saying, I think it might have come from Brad Garlinghouse, I'm not sure. He said, um, to know what you are, you have to know what you're not. You know, you have to know what, what you're going to focus on and what you're not going to focus on. And particularly as the org gets bigger and you can solve bigger problems, there's a tendency to want to take on more problems. <laughs> and and you really need to stick to your core competencies. You it, you don't want to be good at five things. You want to be great at something. <laughs> that makes a lot of sense. And and often it's product. Sometimes in many organizations, it's product that kind of brings that discipline to the process in terms of thinking about what the customer needs and how to prioritize. Within Ripple, how do you balance the the product and engineering? So I mean, in some companies, a chief product officer owns the whole thing, and then there's a VP Eng. In others, there's a CTO, but you have a VP of product. In others, still, you have like two C-level executives, and it ends up being the CEO who who calls it if you if you can't agree with each other. How do you deal with that? Yeah, so I would say product is a C is a C-level um, division within the organization, and there are product managers who work with the engineers to sort of keep the priorities in line and keep things working together. Um, and it would be this, you know, it would be obviously if there was a disagreement that reached that level, it would be the CEO. Although usually we're pretty, I think we're pretty harmonious. We stay in pretty, pretty constant contact and pretty aligned on the problems that we need to solve. Um, I view product more as facility, I guess, because I'm on the engineering side. Probably if you asked our head of product, he'd say the opposite. I view product more as facilitating engineering, reaching its sort of engineering objectives with its engineers. And he would probably say that engineers are the tools that product uses to achieve the product. Objectives. <laughs> Uh, hopefully they're the same objective. So that's that's not a, 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 a dissonant view. Absolutely. And, and how do you, what is the process of, of getting alignment? Because obviously there are some things where it's very clear, like engineering has to have a lot of input on how we think about platforms and technical debt and pay down and, and things like that and programming languages, whatever it is. Product obviously has some impact on, on what you're going to build and why and how you, you prioritize that. How do you do that interface? How, how do you engage with the CPO and, and what kind of conversations do you have? And it actually gets even more complicated than that for us because a lot of what we do requires uh, work with partners. So like if we're targeting another market, like let's say Brazil, there might be exchange partners or payout partners and product will tend to be the interface between engineering and sort of the bus- that business development or corporate development aspect to it. So it's even more complicated for us because we have those other moving parts outside the organization a lot. Um, so obviously, there are frequent alignment meetings, typically weekly, between product and engineering. And as you said, engineering sort of feeds into the architectural side. Product comes up with the list of like, these are the things we want to have. But also what product says is like, if we have those things that engineering has committed to do, what does that mean? What, what does that mean that we're going to have to do with our customers? What does that mean we're going to have to do with our partners? So it's also the sort of forward-looking push because you don't want engineering to add a new feature and then just sort of throw it over the fence. And everybody's like, oh, cool, we have this new feature. Now let's figure out what to do with it. There's also a lot of coordination outside of the engineering portion of 
how is this going to integrate into our business? What are the other pieces that we need in order for this new feature or this new product or this new release or whatever it is to, to fit into some sort of a strategy? And I think a lot of that comes from outside the engineering side of the organization. So I, I definitely view product as a partner in turning engineering successes into company successes. Makes perfect sense. Now, you're in the Bay Area. When you think about hiring, I mean, on the one hand, you're a fintech company. You've got blockchain as, as a core component of what you do. What is the nice to have and what's the required? Are you like, nah, as long as they're a Java or Go developer, we can figure it out. Do they have to come out of Goldman or JP Morgan or, or like a fintech background? Or do you are you looking for five years of blockchain experience? Like, how do you think about prioritizing that when you're higher? Usually what I'm looking for is someone who is smart and who is a team player and who is interested in learning new things and solving new problems. There's always going to be some skill set that's relevant to the particular reason that you're hiring them. Like if you're targeting a new language and you need a JavaScript programmer or you're, you know, you're targeting a new region, you need someone familiar with that region. The biggest thing that I look for is people who are strong in areas where we're weak. You don't want a team of clones. And I know it's counterintuitive because it's like, well, we have this person who's extremely successful and works well inside the organization. Let's look for someone else like them. And you can do that. It's not that, that it's not that that's necessarily wrong, but it's like that if you close yourself off to the people who have different skill sets, you're going to miss, you know, potentially the things that could give you capabilities that you did not have, the people who could, who could really improve. I think the other thing that we focus on is being a great place to work. That's something that we've sort of consciously chosen to do, which sounds, I know everybody's, every, every, I'm sure everybody, everybody tells you that, but I mean, we try really hard to be a fantastic place to work, to hold ourselves to a very high standard and to tackle, you know, very interesting problems. And I think that helped, that really helps us to attract and retain talent. And yeah, what would be some of the specific things you do that you feel makes it a, a good place to work? I, I, one very specific thing that we do is we hold ourselves we hold ourselves accountable. We have we have a set of like chosen values that we call the Legos values, and one of them is say it. And and what it means is like hold people accountable. Some people sometimes people think that like a good place to work is a place that has like a completely fun atmosphere and where everybody's having a great time all the time. We try to have a good time as often as possible, but also you know like it's not fun to be a person who's responsible for something when other people are not accountable for their portion. Of solving that problem. And so we try to choose interesting problems and we try to, you know, assemble teams to tackle them. We try to keep it interesting. So there are there are a lot of very specific little things that sound kind of silly alone, but they kind of cohere into a policy that I think makes this a great place to work. Like for example, we have a company lunch every Thursday. There isn't a program, but we sort of tell people, come to the lunch and sit down and talk to people who are on different teams, like find out what they're doing and what they're interested in. And it's a small thing, but, you know, it builds a sort of cooperative spirit where you where teams, you know, you have conversations that you wouldn't ordinarily have. Um, we have really great snacks. I often joke on Twitter that I'm only here for the snacks and I send pictures of the great snacks that I'm having. Um, but it's it's also just a spirit of working together and um, and tackling problems as a group and tackling big problems. David, thank you so much for taking the time to chat today. It's a pleasure, Peter. Thank you for interviewing me. This episode was produced by the amazing team over at Dante32, a podcast production agency focusing on content strategy, audio production, and distribution. Check them out at dante32.com. And if you'd like to receive new episodes as they're published, please subscribe in 
Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving a review in Apple Podcasts. It really helps others to find the show. Thank you.